you will, keep your Bibles open there at John chapter 12. We're so delighted to have so many visitors today. It's always a privilege to be able to look out and see in the audience a number of those who are visiting with us. Some of you are here with family. Uh, some of you are here for various other reasons. But we want you to know we are delighted that you are with us. We've been studying from the Gospel of John, and our Lord has been presented in a way by the by the Apostle John, that reflects the world in which John and Jesus lived. How that there were so many different ways that Jesus was viewed by men. And when you get to John chapter 12, it is a chapter of contrast. If you'll look at the very first verse, then six days before the Passover... Oh, what a powerful statement that is in just a short phrase. Six days. Those six days were very important. In fact, the Passover is going to begin on Friday evening, just a little less than a week later. This is on Saturday. Jesus is going to arrive at Bethany at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He, like so many other of the Jews, is going to Jerusalem for this great feast of the Passover. The Passover was a very important time for the children of Israel to remember that when God delivered them from that Egyptian bondage, the very last plague that he brought upon the Egyptians was the death of the firstborn. And if you'll remember, the lamb was slain and its blood was placed on the post of the door and over the top of the door, the lentil. And when the angel passed over, no death would occur in that house. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Jesus is our Passover. In fact, in just six days, Jesus is going to be in the tomb. And he is going to be there to shed his blood for the sins of all mankind, that's you and me as well. In fact, the Passion Week was a time of intense passions in the sense of strong feelings. People felt in a very strong way either for Jesus or against him. And so as we begin to think about our Lord, like Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Either you are on the Lord's side or you're not. There's no middle ground. There's no straddling the fence. Just like in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 26 when God had Moses to tell the people to make up their minds, he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves to him. The question is, here in John 12, as well as in 2017, are you on the Lord's side? How do you view him? What is your picture of him? You see, these convictions translate into behavior. That's the same then as today. Depending upon how you and I view the Lord will show us how we will react. 
There are three contrasts that I want us to see in this chapter. The first one is love versus larceny. Do you love the Lord or are you willing to just simply take advantage of him and take advantage of the situation? Number two is the devout versus the devious. Are we people who are loving the Lord and we are committed to him or are we people who are just trying to deviously get what we want? And then finally, the convinced versus the cowards. Let's begin, first of all, looking those first three verses. So I'm going to put it on the screen, but please use your own Bible if you have a copy with you. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, and there they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped them with the hair, his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now I want you to think with me about this little section of scripture for just a moment. They made him a supper. This is like when you want to honor someone. Maybe they have achieved something great in life and you want to give them an honor so you, you make them a supper. It's important as you look at this, they're honoring Jesus and Martha is serving. That's not surprising. If you go back to Luke chapter 10 and you read about Jesus' coming to Bethany, you notice there the text tells us that Martha was cumbered about with much serving. She's a lot like many of you ladies. If it comes time to have a meal, you're the one in the kitchen, you're the one working, you're the one preparing the text says that Lazarus sat. He sat with our Lord. Perhaps he's also being honored because this man just a few weeks earlier had been dead in the tomb. And here he is. Maybe this is a meal to honor Lazarus who has been dead and now has risen. And now Jesus is the one who raised him from the dead. But the third thing that you see is Mary anointed. And when you look at what she is doing, it's remarkable in and of itself because John goes on to say that she used a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. Nard is a plant that is grown in India. It doesn't produce very much oil. In fact, you have to press it and press it and press it just to get a drop or two out of it. She has about a pound, which according to our measurements would be about 12 ounces. But to appreciate this, you have to realize that the text says that it was worth 300 denarii. That's 60 weeks of salary. I want each of you to calculate in your mind how much you think you make in a week and multiply that times 60, and that's how much that was worth. That was probably one of the most precious possessions she owned and certainly one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable. But I think it's interesting to notice 
It's not the head of the Lord that she anoints. That's generally what a person would do with oil or spikenard. You would use just a very small amount, but she's going to use it all, and she's going to use it on his feet. At another occasion in Luke chapter 7 and verse 46, Jesus says to Simon, You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman, she's anointed my feet with fragrant oil. You see, what this shows is great humility on the part of Mary. If I were to ask you the question, did Mary love Jesus? You would say absolutely she did. A person doesn't take something worth hundreds, thousands of dollars and use it on someone's feet unless it's very special to them. But I've got to contrast that with verses 4 through 8. Look with me now as we continue on in this passage. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? This, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has done this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now if you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's parallel accounts, you learn some additional information you learn that Judas is not the only one who's complaining about this. He is the spokesman, however. Perhaps because he's the treasurer, he's the one who carries the money box. He's the spokesman. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 8 and 9, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? And they suggest the money should be given to the poor. But Mark's account draws attention to some more detail. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Notice how they're looking at Mary and they're saying, Mary, you're not doing what is right. You're wasteful. Don't you find it strange sometimes that when it comes to things for the Lord that sometimes we're the stingiest in the world? When in reality, why are we wanting to be stingy? Is it not so we want it to have it for ourselves? You see, his motivation was greed. John tells us he was a thief. That's what larceny is, is, is stealing. It's a thief. But if you go further and you read Matthew's account, you realize just how greedy Judas was. Notice what Matthew's account goes on to say. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Wow. Now he's to the point, just give me more, give me more. What are you willing to give? And then I will deliver him into your hands. 
Jesus gave her a compliment rather than a criticism. You see, the disciples, particularly Judas, are criticizing her. But Jesus said she has done this for my burial. I'd suggest to you, if you look at it carefully, it appears that Mary has had this for some time. She knows Jesus is going to die and to be buried. She understands things better than his disciples do. And in giving of this oil and in the anointing of Jesus' feet, she understands that his death is necessary and out of love she gave. Now the second section that I want us to look at is verse 9 and then verses 20 through 22. Because you're going to be confronted with people who are now going to have to decide, am I going to follow Jesus or am I not going to follow him? In fact, would I persecute him? And in verse 9 we read, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. You'll drop down now to verse 20 through 22. John says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew with Philip came and told Jesus. Now, I want you to observe a few details here. They know Jesus was there. They were looking for him. They were seeking for him. It's not every day that someone is able to raise someone from the dead. He healed a man at Bethesda who could not walk. He healed a blind man whom he sent to the pool of Siloam who would anoint his eyes and he could see but wherever have you heard of someone being able to raise the dead? And Jesus did. And Lazarus is a man that they could go and look and see. He's walking around. He's talking. Here's a man who's been dead four days. These people are looking for Jesus because they're interested. They came to see Lazarus from the dead. What's even more interesting is those verses 20 through 22 that you have Greeks that are interested. These are not your Jews. These are people like the Ethiopian eunuch. These are people who are from all over the world, but they come to Jerusalem to worship because they have believed and accepted the God of heaven. They're not polytheists anymore. They don't believe in all these gods. They believe in the God of heaven, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And they've heard about Jesus. And they want to know more about him. They want to see him. Acts 14 verse 1. Paul comes to Iconium, the synagogue of the Jews. It says there was a great multitude both of the Jews and of the Greeks who believed. In Acts 17 and verse 4 it talks about the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women join Paul and Silas. Here's a reality. 
people from various nations, various cultures, various backgrounds, many of them are honest people. And when they see the truth, they'll say, that's right. That's what we're going to do. They were devout and they were discerning. They were honest people with honest minds willing to look at the evidence and follow where it leads. But now in contrast, let's look at chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, and then verses 17 through 19. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Dropping down to verse 17. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees said among themselves, You see that you're accomplishing nothing? Look, the whole world has gone after him. You look at these people. What are they wanting to do? These people are dishonest. They're devious. They're looking at Lazarus and saying, everybody's believing on him because of Lazarus. We've got to kill him too. We've got to put him to death. That's not honest. That says, if it's not what I want to believe, I'll change the facts. And that's what they were trying to do with Lazarus. Their idea was, look, you're accomplishing nothing. We've got to do something. We've got to do something now. So we've got to be devious. So they're going to try to remove or obscure the evidence from everybody else. Now very quickly, let's look at the last section of those who were confidently convinced versus those who were cowards. Look at verses 12 through 16. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered the things that were written about him and what, and that they had done these things to him. Now, let me tell you, this is an extraordinary event. The next day, that means this is Sunday, often referred to as Palm Sunday. It's a day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's going to start on the top of the Mount of Olives, riding on a foal, a donkey's colt. And he's going to ride into Jerusalem. He's not going to be riding on a white horse conquering into conquer. 
He's going to come in humbly. Notice with me Matthew's parallel account. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, a fold of a donkey. Jesus is not riding into Jerusalem as a proud king, but he's riding in as a lowly, humble king. Verses 10 and 11, And when he had come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. This is a tremendous event. People's eyes are focused on him. He's the son of God. Luke's account says in verse 39 and 40 of chapter 19, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. You can't stop this event. This is the coronation of Jesus in the minds of many of the people. He is the king of Israel coming into Jerusalem. What a dramatic event that must have been. When you go back to Psalms chapter 118, you begin to appreciate the prophecy that's involved Hosanna. Hosanna means save him. Preserve him. Like the phrase, God save the queen. That would be spoken in Great Britain. You see, their idea is they want God's preservation. Crying out Hosanna is saying, Jesus is to be preserved. He is our king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That quotation from Psalm 118 would emphasize that this is a person about whom you should speak good words. The king of Israel. These are people who are convinced. They're convinced enough that they'll lay down the palm branches. They will follow him. They'll cry out, Hosanna. Let's contrast that now with verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But they would, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You know what these people were? They were cowards. Did they believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Absolutely they did. Many believed in Him, but they're cowards. They won't stand up and own Him. They won't stand up and say, I believe in Him. Won't you listen to Revelation 21 and verse 8 as John later will describe... Who's going to hell? 
But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Do you mean that people who are so cowardly that they will not confess Jesus are going to die and spend an eternity in hell? Absolutely. That's being harsh. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33? Everyone, therefore, who will confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. Everyone, therefore, who denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father in heaven. You remember back in John 9, the man who was blind that was healed? Do you remember his parents? Is this your son? That's been healed? How does he respond? His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. He said, well, what's the big deal about putting out of the synagogue? Oh, that's where you no longer have your social relationships. That's where you no longer talk with these people on a daily basis. They're going to shun you. You're not going to be able to go there for the encouragement that you receive. Well, they decided you can't be a part of the synagogue if you believe in Jesus. The question is, whose praise matters more? Is it more important that men pat you on the back and say, good job? Or that you earn the praise of God. What we learn here is that these cowards were not willing to stand up and say what they believed. Jesus had already addressed this back in John 5 and verse 44. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not Seek the honor that comes from the only God. You're not looking for the right place. You're not seeking to please the right person. Now let's summarize all of this. Which group do you fit in? Are you among those who love the Lord? Are you among those who are devout, who are convinced? Or are you among those who look at the Lord as something that you can use to get ahead? Are you devious in the sense that you are not really honest about your motives? Are you a person who's too cowardly to stand up and do the right thing? Or are you trying to make no decision at all? The problem is you can't straddle the fence. Either Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and if He is the Son of God, 
I owe him my allegiance. I owe him my obedience. I owe him my worship. You see, the truth is you've got to make up your mind. Ultimately, each of us are going to give an answer. In this same chapter, you get to verse 48. Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The truth is, that book that you have called the Bible is God's gift to you to tell you what He wants you to do and how He wants you to live. It is that book that presents to us Jesus Christ in all of His glory and all of His grandeur. And John presents for us a contrast here. And which one will we follow? If you're not a Christian this morning, we want to urge you to be obedient to Jesus. What he said for us to do is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. If you have not yet been baptized for the remission of your sins, we urge you to do that this morning. We'll sing this song of encouragement and you can come sit on the front seat and say, I want to be baptized for the remission of my sins. We'll let you confess your faith in Christ and see that you're baptized immediately. If you're a Christian and you look at your life and you're you're shaking your head and you're saying, I've made so many mistakes. I'm not walking with the Lord Why not come and let's pray together? Would you come while together we stand and sing?